This is Guns and Butter. This uh, yellow vest movement, you could say that it's a revival of, a, of an economic left. The, the yellow vest, sudden, spontaneous revival of the working class, and they have been tremendously repressed by the government. They've been ideologically repressed and physically repressed. There was a whole campaign initially to start out accusing them that, that they must be that they must be racist. And it's, it's interesting that the, the yellow vests have been much more uh, violently repressed than Black Lives Matter demonstrations. The police don't, don't touch them, they don't go near them, but the yellow vests get very seriously beaten up. Why? Because the yellow vests are really threatening the economic system. That, that's, that's what has to be preserved, is, is the, the economic system. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Diana Johnstone. Today's show, Memoir of a World Watcher. Diana Johnstone is an author, journalist, and political activist. She has spent more than half of her life in Europe as a political writer, focusing primarily on European politics and Western foreign policy. She has worked for Agence France Presse, for In These Times as European correspondent, and as press officer for the Green Group in the European Parliament. She is the author of four books, including Fool's Crusade, Yugoslavia, NATO, and Western Delusions, and Queen of Chaos, The Misadventures of Hillary Clinton. Her new book, published by Clarity Press in February of 2020, Circle in the Darkness, Memoir of a World Watcher, is the subject of today's program. Diana Johnstone, welcome. Well, I'm very happy to be talking with you, Bonnie. Your newest book, Circle in the Darkness, Memoir of a World Watcher, begins with a quote from Albert Einstein. As our circle of knowledge expands so does the circumference of darkness surrounding it. Later in your memoir, you note that it was your father who uh, used to recite this quote in the sense that the more we know, the more we know how little we know. This seems to be a recurring theme in your memoirs. Does this image reflect the intent of your memoirs? Yes, it does, really, because... I wouldn't have written my memoirs to write about myself, of course, but just uh, the memoirs are the memoirs of my learning experience. And it's the experience of a naive American who goes out in the world, and I learn a lot about it as I go along. And I'm wanting to share all of that learning experience with this book. That's, that's really what it's about. But um, as the quote says, the more you know, the more you realize how much there is to know that is really uh, still waiting for you to learn about. 
Your first trip to Europe was as an undergraduate in Slavic studies, and that trip consisted of an extended stay in Belgrade, in Tito's Yugoslavia and Kosovo, this in 1953. It sounded like you did without many creature comforts. What would you say is one of your lasting impressions of Yugoslavia under Tito? My most lasting impression was the friends I made. Uh, I made friends very easily there. I was in a dormitory with seven other girls, and they didn't have very much material wealth. And in fact, we shared clothes because most of them had maybe two tops, <laughs> and we would share in order to have variety. But it was it was a place that was growing. You see, this was. A, the country had suffered greatly from World War II and was recovering and, and uh, was moving ahead. I was impressed that many girls were studying engineering, which is very rare in the West. But that was symptomatic of the fact that the country was building itself. And it became, in fact, a, a center of, of engineering, sending engineers all over the Middle East, for instance. Um, so it was it was coming out of the hardship of a war, and it was a socialist system. It was independent of the Soviet Union, and it was it, it was a, a fascinating place. So of course later on I was uh, I was very taken back by all that happened to it because I had seen it when it was a single country, and and that was strong because. Being a single country, it had an international presence. It was a non-aligned country. It was a leader of the non-aligned movement. And it, it was independent socialist. It was trying to do its own way. It's doing its own thing. But it turns out that that's exactly what uh, Western powers do not appreciate. In subsequent years, you made several trips to Yugoslavia, both before the breakup of the country and the NATO bombing, and afterwards. The history of the Balkans, of course, is very complex. Could you comment on the 78-day NATO bombing of Serbia and in the immediate aftermath of the bombing, the erection of Camp Bonsteel in Kosovo, the largest foreign military base in Europe? Well, the rapid construction of that base confirms my theory of the real reason for that war. The real reason for the bombing of Yugoslavia, the pretext was to save the Kosovars, meaning the Albanian ethnic population in the Serbian province of Kosovo, uh, from persecution. But the real reason for, for that war was to give NATO a new mission. Remember that the Soviet Union had collapsed. Supposedly, NATO had been formed to defend Europe its member states in Europe, from the Soviet threat, which was imaginary, in fact. Uh, but once the Soviet Union collapsed, there was no Soviet threat, and there was no real reason for NATO to continue. 
because the, the Soviet alliance had also collapsed. There was no threat. There was nothing. Uh, Russia was just looking for good relations and so on. So it was invented that NATO could have a new mission, which would be humanitarian intervention. There was no threat at all. But this gave uh, NATO the new mission, which it continues to use in the Middle East and maybe the whole world, uh, to pursue the United States foreign policy objectives. So actually, that was the uh, anniversary of NATO, and they were celebrating their new mission by bombing a country that had done nothing against them whatsoever, uh, destroying the infrastructure. I mentioned how much the Yugoslavs went in for engineering. They, NATO bombed their bridges, um, even hospitals. And uh, this, this was presented as a humanitarian mission. And the media propaganda was so intense that the left, the Western left, accepted this aggressive, totally aggressive war uh, on the pretext that it was saving people's lives by killing, by killing them. Um, so, of course, this was confirmed because as soon as, as the United States forced the Serbs to surrender, and by the way, they forced them not by defeating them, but by threatening to destroy the whole civilian country. That's the way they win a war. They, they never faced Serbian forces, which on the ground would probably have defeated them. But they threatened to destroy the whole civilian society, and that uh, induced the leaders to accept what was meant to be a compromise. But the West violated the compromise and simply took over. And almost immediately, the United States started just expropriated land without asking anybody and building this huge American base, which, of course, is used as a jump-off spot for its operations in the Middle East. You write about the Watergate scandal as having done immense harm to journalistic ethics by relying on spook revelations. How would you describe this type of journalism, and what do you find problematic about it? The difficulty is that mainstream journalists are expected to have good official sources. Now, to have a good official source, you must be on good terms with that official source. And uh, that usually means that you write the sort of things that that official source wants you to write. And that official source might be in the Pentagon, might be in the State Department, might be in the CIA, very much so might be in the CIA. And this would be informed sources tell us, and you don't give the name. Um, that means, in fact, that the journalist is simply uh, forwarding official government propaganda as, as news. And that's what the mainstream media wants. Uh, a journalist who will investigate and go against what the official sources said is not going to last very long. Uh, in fact, probably won't get there because you can see what's coming. You can, the more individualistic people won't, won't get to that height in the agency. But that has gotten worse uh, as time goes on. But 
the real problem of Watergate is that it glorified what, in fact, was a very big power operation with the Washington Post and official uh, sources, uh, anonymous sources, who are really out to get Nixon. Now, that doesn't mean that Nixon is any kind of a saint. Certainly not. But they didn't go after him for the really bad things he had done, such as bombing North Vietnam after the war was really lost. No, they went after him because of some offense toward the Democratic National Committee, which uh, is not really perhaps the most virtuous organization in the world anyway. So they went after him for some sort of rather minor domestic problem and made this huge thing out of it in order to get rid of Nixon, who was then sort of the scapegoat that united the nation. I remember that. I remember two things about the reaction. One thing is that journalists loved that. They thought that Watergate made them great heroes, and it was a role model for them. For the ordinary public, what struck me is that it could unite kids who had been against the war and their parents, their liberal parents, who were not so sure about that, but certainly didn't like Nixon. So we could all get together and unite the nation around hating Nixon. And that's also something very ugly, I think. You were in Paris doing research for your doctorate during the anti-Vietnam War student revolt in Paris in May of 1968. You point out in your book that the greatest general strike in French history was taking place in 1968, but it was not the media focus. Of the May 68 Paris revolt, you write, quote, indeed, transformation and adaptation ensured that the real economic powers running the world were not seriously disturbed by all this turmoil. The world seemed to be coming together politically when it was, in fact, falling apart. Do you think that the anti-war movements of the 60s had no lasting effect? And what was it like in Paris in 1968? Well, uh, that's, that's a big order. Well, it was it was quite exciting in, in '68, and uh, I would say that's a good example of the the circle in the darkness because I was right there in the middle of the circle, and I can say that I understand things a lot better now, far away from that circle, uh, than I did at the time. I mean, the significance of it was something that has come to me and to others gradually because it seemed like a revolution and in many ways, but it it was maybe a lesson in what isn't a revolution. Students in the street is not a revolution. (laughs) And the illusion could be that a lot of students protesting and fighting with the police, but fighting very gently, both the police and the... uh, militants were very careful to keep the violence within limits so that there were no serious injuries. Um, I think there was one accidental death of someone who fell somewhere. But um, so it was it was sort of a charade of a revolution. 
Um, there was the, the general strike is closer to what you would think a social revolution is because they were asking for wage increases. The students, it wasn't too sure what they were asking for. They were asking for change. They were asking for things like everything. They were like everything. We want everything. Um, there was a hedonistic element which finally won out, although that wasn't evident at the time because you had all sorts of groups Trotskyists, Maoists, various groups claiming to want some kind of communist revolution. Uh, on the other hand, they were very, very anti-communist regarding their own French Communist Party. And probably one of the main things that came out is that the students would claim that the French Communist Party wasn't revolutionary enough. And... Uh, so the left right there, it began a very uh, important split in what you could call the left um, between the, the, the Communist Party, which was organized and had members of parliament and mayors of towns and so on, and the student leftists who were complaining that they weren't making the revolution fast enough. And uh, actually those revolutionary students turned pretty much to the right subsequently. I'm speaking with author, journalist, and political activist Diana Johnstone. Today's show, Memoir of a World Watcher. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You were engaged in extensive anti-war work during the Vietnam War at the University of Minnesota, coming up with innovative ways for students to take their movement into the community in a community contact program, and then uh, later developing and leading a People's Commission of Inquiry into the solution to the war in Vietnam to Paris to meet with the South Vietnamese provisional revolutionary government. You write that, quote, as for the American anti-war movement, half a century later, it has vanished almost without a trace as an influential political force. How would you account for this vacuum of concern and complacency of the public during the last 20 years of endless war? The anti-war movement itself uh, had very different branches. I, I, was, I would say I was in a serious branch, let me put it that way. I really believe, I believe then and I believe now, I've never changed, that one should look for practical solutions to problems, that one should find out something to do. And that's why I came up with the idea of the of the community contact program. Then the students did it. They just took that idea and ran with it. And it was the same way with my idea of the going to meet the Vietnamese. Uh, I had the idea of something constructive to do. And this was very important at the time because we were about the only university that started doing something constructive, whereas other universities went on strike. Uh, they ended up fighting with the police the university was shut down, and their strike was over in a few days, and we went on for a couple of months. Why? Because we were thinking of something constructive to do. And I feel that too much of the left was not doing practical things. They were doing ideology 
or they were doing uh, street theater, counterculture, things like that, having a great old time. And the media, of course, picked up on, on the fun part. Um, the hippies and the yippies, that was what you could do to get into the media. Or you could be violent like uh, the underground and you get into the newspaper. But our constructive strike was ignored by national media. <laughs> so you see, the, the media is always there to enhance and give value to useless activities where something uh, constructive will be ignored by the media. And, and uh, this, is, this is very serious reason, I think, for the, for the destruction of the anti-war movement. Um, the idea that just protesting, a movement is just a matter of protesting, is not adequate. I think you don't have to just protest. You have to want to do something and do something. Um, but meanwhile, the, the establishment, the military establishment, was studying ways to combat any future anti-war movement. And one thing was to get rid of the draft and have a conscript army so you wouldn't have people who were reluctant to go to war, uh, to wage war on the pretext of human rights, to, to, to avoid any close news coverage of the atrocities that are committed on the ground, you just show bombing, spectacular fireworks of bombing Belgrade. I mean, not Belgrade this time, but Baghdad. Um, and then this glorification of the, of the military, which has gone on in the United States. I haven't been in the United States for a few years, but I'm told that on air flights, passengers actually applaud military people this is extraordinary. I certainly couldn't see that in Europe. And that seems that there's become a, a sort of worship of, of the military. And so that, that seems that the Americans are, are, are supporting our military activities, which are not defending the United States in any possible way, but are just tearing other countries apart. But it doesn't seem to affect Americans at all. In your memoir, you discuss the French presidents, beginning with Charles de Gaulle to present-day Emmanuel Macron. What is significant to know about French President Charles de Gaulle and the impact he had on France and Europe? Well, uh, de Gaulle began, what can you say, de Gaulle began by rejecting France's surrender to Germany. And so he, he led the, one of the resistance, and also his resistance, the resistance, the Gaullist resistance, which was, ended up as, as a military force, um, did not fight with the communist resistance, but managed to find a compromise with them. And this, this led to a social program coming out of World War II because there was agreement on the right and the left that we needed a social program. And, and this, was, this was the result, whereas in other places you did not have this unity of what you could call the, the patriotic and the communist resistance. But the, the thing about de Gaulle is that all of his intention 
was to save France's self-respect from the horrible defeat of, of 1940. That was a traumatic experience for France to lose the war very quickly to German invaders. And de Gaulle worked very hard and successfully to place France among the victors at the end of the war. But one reason he was doing that was to prevent the United States from occupying militarily France the way it occupied Italy and Germany and Belgium. And that succeeded also by military means because he, he brought in his free French forces from the south in order to uh, t take Paris before the Americans got there so that they didn't, as they planned to do, a military government of France. So first of all, he, he saved France from being militarily occupied as the other countries were. And then he was out of office very quickly and he came back in 1958. So he was president during the 60s. And during the 60s, he decided that France should have an independent role, still allied to the West, but he took France out of the NATO command and made the Americans leave France militarily. So that France was no longer a militarily occupied country as other European countries still are. And he criticized the United States war in Southeast Asia and adopted a, a policy of being friendly with all countries and notably with third world countries. He had, the goal had decided early on that the age of colonialism was over and that is why when he came back into power, it was because of a crisis over the independence war in Algeria. And without saying so, he came to power with the intention of, of allowing Algerian independence, which he finally did. And so he was opposed to the wars that the United States was getting into and was wanting to keep France out of them. But one of the great results of May 68, although May 68 culminated in elections which favored de Gaulle, nevertheless, he felt discouraged by the whole experience and found a way to resign and soon left the scene. And after de Gaulle, the tendency has been more and more to follow, to follow the United States. Well, this brings up the important point that so much of Europe presently, particularly Germany and Italy, as you've mentioned, are occupied countries. They're occupied by NATO, which is uh, basically the United States, right? It is the United States, and this is incredible. Look, it's 75 years later, the United States is still occupying the countries that it conquered. And, and the worst of it is that they have American nuclear weapons stationed on the territory of these occupied countries. 
There are nuclear weapons on Italian air bases, on German bases, in Belgium. Now, uh, there is no sign whatsoever that the populations of these countries appreciate this manner of being defended by the United States, because in fact, it puts them right in the front line. If ever there was a nuclear war with, with Russia, who the United States insists on keeping as an enemy, even though the Russians didn't want to be an enemy, uh, if there was a nuclear war, well, and if the Russians were obliged to knock out nuclear bases in, in the West, they'd have to bomb Germany and Italy. Uh, so this is, this is an insane situation. And there was a huge peace movement in the 80s, which I covered and to write about in my book, because I was very much involved in that, um, against American nuclear missiles in Europe. And that movement was huge, especially in Germany. And it led to uh, reunification of Germany, and it seemed that there was a happy ending and there was a treaty to start to nuclear disarmament. And that has all been reversed, all been reversed. And we've gone back to having American nuclear weapons imperiling their dear allies, and, and uh, somehow or other, the opposition has been squelched. I'm speaking with author, journalist, and political activist Diana Johnstone. Today's show, Memoir of a World Watcher. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You were press officer for the Green Group in the European Parliament. What was the original platform of the European Greens, and why did you eventually become disillusioned with them? Well, the Greens were formed uh, on a platform of uh, environment, feminism, peace, human rights, and uh, I I got to know them during this big anti-missile uh, movement in the 1980s. I even had a pied-à-terre, a, a, a little place to stay in Germany. I spent a lot of time in Germany. I, I covered the Greens very carefully. And it was no doubt because of those contacts that I was hired as the press officer of the European Greens in the European Parliament. And, of, of course, I had got to know them when they were leading the movement against nuclear weapons as the peace movement. And there was Petra Kelly, who was um, a big leader of that movement. And I was, of course, quite happy to go along with that. Uh, I was never a member of any party, but I certainly sympathized with their peace movement. And so, so I was working for the Greens. And what happened is that the, the German Greens were really taken over by what they called the realos, the realists. The media, in fact, the media plays a huge role in our politics, not just telling us what the news is, but really forming politics. Because the media made a big fuss about a conflict between the realos and the fundies, meaning the realists and the fundamentalists. Now the fundamentalists, that sounds sort of negative. That sounds like, you know, people really don't want it. And by that they meant the people with principles. 
and the realos, the realists, are the ones who want to get ahead and will make any, any kind of compromise in, in order to have a career. And the leaders of the leader of the of the realos was Yoshka Fischer, and he and Daniel Kohnbendit ended up, in fact, transforming the Greens from a peace party to a pro-NATO military intervention party. I describe that in the book. I can't go through that, but I explain it very clearly what happened in in that book. And the the Greens were influenced by the fact that the media would pay more attention to a pro-war green than to a peaceful green, and that that way they get into the newspapers and onto television with Danny Cohn-Bendit, who's a big star. And the, the media played a huge role in transforming the Greens into a war party. And now they are the most pro-war party in the German, in the German political scene. They are the ones that are most anti-Russian. Uh, it, it, it's absolutely remarkable. It's a total transformation. Could you discuss how both the Maastricht Treaty in 1992 and the Lisbon Treaty of 2009 both empower finance capital to override national and EU sovereignty? You indicate in your book that the Maastricht Treaty prevents European countries and the EU from creating their own debt, thereby having to borrow from commercial banks. What have been the effects of private financial institutions empowered to choose what investments will be made? Yeah, now, the, these, these treaties are the result of what really amounts to a neoliberal counter-revolution in the 1980s when uh, the, the Thatcher revolution, there is no alternative but... Uh, finance capital, the finance, the markets must decide. The markets meaning the financial markets, they don't mean your little vegetable market down the street. They mean the financial markets must decide everything. And so the the governments gave in to this. And this is when they, 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 they changed the idea of being on the left. Uh, being, they said that we have to, we have to, we have to be international. We have to, uh, uh, we mustn't be nationalists. Nationalism is bad. We must be internationalists. So uh, government shouldn't look out for our own welfare. They should, they should look out for the welfare of uh, the financial markets. You see, the financial markets live off of debt. The Maastricht Treaty says that, that governments cannot borrow from their own central bank. That's the point. Because their own central bank is very indulgent and will not charge huge interest. And if the government can borrow from a central bank, it can finance projects. It can finance industrial projects. For instance, the auto routes. That's a good example. Because the auto routes are an example of something that requires government financing to build these big highway, super highways. And then they've been sold privately because the EU demands that everything should be privatized. 
you need to favor competition. And so private companies buy the auto route and they get the profit from something that was built with government financing. And so that reduces the government income. The government is no longer able to finance projects that, that will help finance the government, but, but they have to borrow from commercial banks. And the commercial banks can charge whatever interest they want to. And what has happened is that the southern countries, especially Greece, but now Italy also, and others, um, the more they are in debt, the higher the interest rate, and the more deeper in debt they get. The, the French debt now is over 100% of GDP, and the governments are not allowed to tax, they have to borrow. But for the financial markets, sovereign debt is what they live off of. You see, the, these financial institutions would much rather uh, lend to governments because the governments are sure to pay them. So the, the financial institutions have managed to, to turn the governments into milk cows. The only problem is that, you, you know, you, you can overdo it. You can end up pushing the states, to, the governments to bankruptcy, and then, and then you don't know what is going to happen. And that is the situation that is beginning to loom its ugly head, that certain governments, Greece is sort of permanently bank, on the edge of bankruptcy, Italy is getting there. And uh, so, so this is an extremely precarious situation, and it also goes along with austerity and cutting back on government expenditures, cutting back on, on welfare, cutting back on hospital facilities, uh, cutting back on all sort of public things in order to keep paying the debt. You write that the 2005 popular revolt against the European Constitution marked the last united struggle of the left to preserve the French social model from the power of international finance. Is there then no longer a united left in Europe? Well, there isn't because Europe has expanded so much. Uh, I mean, initially there was a core of countries that sort of agreed about things. I mean, they, you started out with with France, Germany, Benelux, and Italy. Uh, now you have, uh, what is it, 20, 27, 20, I've lost count, uh, members, and you've brought in countries with drastically different outlooks on everything, like Poland and the Baltic states, who all have vetoes, because any major decision of the European Union has to be done by veto. And you now have uh, one reason that Europe has a very... Uh, anti-Russian policy, it's pressure from the United States, but also because uh, Poland is there, and Poland traditionally is anti-Russian and says, goody, goody, NATO, please bring your soldiers here as close to Russia as possible, we like that. Um, and so so now you, you, have, you have a group of, of, of countries that really are not going to agree to any a positive change because they they just have totally different historic outlooks, um, political outlooks, everything, and um, so the the EU is really in pretty much of a mess. 
Could you discuss the Yellow Vest movement in France, the Gilets Jaunes, and what is happening in France with this movement presently? Now, this started about a year ago, didn't it? Uh, well, it was very big. Yeah, if this uh, Yellow Vest movement, you could say that it's a revival of, a, of an economic left. After Mitterrand gave in to neoliberal policies, the fashion of the left became not to think about economic issues and to, and to just think about anti-racism, uh, especially anti-racism. There was a big revival of, of concern about, about uh, persecution of the Jews, of minorities. So, so worrying about persecution of minorities, identities, and so on, and, and having good attitudes and forgetting about economic issues and considering that the working class was suspect because it probably was racist or um, homophobic or something. So the, the yellow vests are sudden, spontaneous revival of the working class. But this is the deindustrialized working class. It's not the, the factory working class. And meanwhile, factories are closing all the time in this, in this uh, neoliberal uh, period. Of course, there still is a lot of industry in France, but it's it's closing down. The trend is to deindustrialize. So the the yellow vests are people who 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 are in the working class, in the services, uh, delivery people, nurses, especially in the small towns, and they have been tremendously repressed by the government. They've been ideologically repressed and physically repressed. Ideologically, they they have they they was a whole campaign initially to start out accusing them that, that they must be uh, because they were patriotic and they, they they were seen to be seen with French flags that they must be racist, which was totally unsupported uh, accusation. And funny thing is the famous Antifa. Uh, we're always coming in to see if the if these yellow vests were racist or, or had bad attitudes on something, uh, but they didn't. That's not the case at all. But they've been physically brutally repressed by the police, uh, which hasn't. It, well, it has diminished their demonstrations because a lot of people don't want to risk having their eyes shot out which has happened to a number of people of those. And it's, it's interesting that the, the yellow vests have been much more uh, violently repressed than, than uh, for instance, recently they, they, they against, although they're not supposed to be demonstrating because of the uh, virus, there have been illy, uh, non-recognized uh, Black Lives Matter demonstrations. The police don't, don't touch them. They don't go near them. But the yellow vests get very seriously beaten up. Why? Because the yellow vests are really threatening the economic system. That, that's, that's what has to be preserved, is, is, the, is the, the economic system. But uh, they, they are pretty quiet now, but they're not gone. Their demands have really been vindicated by the coronavirus outbreak because it has illustrated 
what has happened when the money has been taken away from hospitals and there are not enough hospital beds, not enough medical personnel to handle an unusual number of sick people. And that is why they had to do the lockdown because the medical facilities couldn't handle uh, an extra lot of, of sick people. And this has, since a, one of the main complaints of the Yellow Vest has been financing of things like the hospitals, this this has vindicated them. And I don't know how it will play out, but there's a presidential election in, in uh, two years. And uh, I, I mean, we're not going to have a revolution, but uh, that doesn't seem very likely. But the yellow vests are very much there as something in the public consciousness. I'm speaking with author, journalist, and political activist Diana Johnstone. Today's show, Memoir of a World Watcher. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What have you discovered about Antifa? supposedly an anti-fascist movement. Is Antifa a global phenomenon? Well, there seem to be Antifa every, everywhere, a small number of them everywhere. The Antifa are symptomatic of a fixation on fascism, uh, which I attribute to a, a, a very limited historic consciousness, which which concentrates on a period of the uh, of the beginning, first half of the 20th century, um, as if fascism was something that was going to come back. And this fixation seems to inspire a certain number of youths who like the idea of having an enemy that they can fight. Um, and... Uh, this anti-fascism is, is very much related to the concentration, as I say, how much do young people really know about history? They learn about the war, but they mainly learn about the war and, this, and they learn about the Holocaust. So they mainly learn about, about fascism as being genocide. And so there's this panic that they'll come back and be a genocide. And the motives of these anti-fascist groups is we must stop the rise of fascism by 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 killing it in the in, in the egg by by killing it, and that leads to um, trying to silence people um, because they might be beginning of fascism. All of this is is a distraction from the real existing forms of power, and that explains why. The real power, because the real power in the United States and and pretty much in Europe is is a neoliberal power. It, it isn't a right wing power. It's a neoliberal power, um, which uh, gives, for instance, Mark Bray wrote a book which was very much promoted on on Antifa, and it's supposedly a revolutionary book, but the, the establishment. Would, would certainly not so much promote something that was really a threat to the establishment. But this, this is safe because it, it, it distracts from, from the, the fact that the real form of power is the financial power that 
that is personified by billionaires, but it's also by the the economic policies and all of that. Instead of that, just looking around for fascists is is a way to keep people who might be on the left busy doing something useless. It distracts from them. And there, I would say there is street Antifa and online Antifa. The street Antifa like to find people that they can physically get in a bother or fight or something. In, in France, there's a lot of online Antifa, and they, they attack people, often people on the left, accusing them of being red-brown, that is, accusing them of not being really on the left, of being really fascist, and, and especially uh, attacking them for being conspiratorial. Now, being conspiratorial means questioning the uh, dominant narrative on something. For instance, on Syria, if you are, if you are against the war, NATO and so on, intervention in Syria, simply because you don't want to have a war in Syria, simply because you're against war, they'll say that, oh, well, you're really a, a sympathizer with the fascist regime, and so you're really a fascist. And they, they attack people by name who are usually people that are on the left, but who uh, deviate, in fact, from the official line. So the Antifa end up being a sort of a militia enforcing the, the establishment position. It's very strange because they pretend to be super revolutionaries, but they're not. They're the, rather the opposite. You spent some time in Libya before the NATO attack on that country. What were your impressions of Libya under Colonel Gaddafi? Well, my impressions were, were quite favorable. Um, I, I found people quite open. There was no sign of, of didn't seem like at all a police state. It's quite prosperous. And of course, people, most people in the West don't know anything about Libya at all. So it was quite easy for uh, those who are interested to say anything about Libya and have people in the West believe it. And that's exactly what happened. I think this brings up this the subject of this principle that that the West managed to get support for in the United Nations, that responsibility to protect, called R2P. Now, this, this principle, the idea of it, it's a, it's a rule to break national sovereignty, to say that we can go into a country uh, because we have a right, we have a responsibility to protect people if they are threatened. Now, by making this a principle, it was temptation to, to use it. A crisis could be totally invented to provide an excuse to overthrow a regime the Western powers wanted. You see, when you say the responsibility to protect, who is going to exert that responsibility? The only power that can possibly exert that responsibility is NATO. It's the only one that has the means to go in and invade a country supposedly to protect someone. So in fact, the R2P is a calling card for NATO because nobody else can possibly uh, use it. And of course, the Western powers have always been against Gaddafi because he came in as a revolutionary using the oil wealth 
to build this more or less socialist, more or less social society, Muslim socialism with a good good position for women. So on February 2, 2011, at the time that there was this Arab Spring in various countries, a Libyan who happened to be very close to the United States and an expert on oil, who had written on that subject in the United States, but who was president of the Libyan Human Rights Group, Dr. Sliman Bouchouigouir, went to Geneva to tell human rights organizations that Gaddafi, President Gaddafi, was planning to wipe out the people of Benghazi. Later, in an interview, he admitted that there was no evidence for that. And in fact, there never was any evidence. But simply on the basis of the statements of one man, these NGOs went to the UN and got the UN to, to agree to do something, and they initiated a no-fly zone over Libya. Now, no-fly zone actually means a NATO fly zone. That means that NATO was free to, to fly over Libya for months, bombing it, destroying it, murdering Gaddafi, and all this with a huge propaganda campaign because Libya had the highest standard of living in Africa. Also, Gaddafi was very interested in promoting African well-being. He was planning to use the oil wells to give a gold standard-backed currency to African countries to help them develop. This did not please certain Western countries. So the war against Gaddafi was a war against Africa. And as a matter of fact, in South Africa and some other countries were wanting to, to mediate. It was perfectly possible. But uh, Gaddafi was accused of using black mercenaries. This was a racist, absolutely a racist war because Gaddafi gave good jobs to Africans. He prevented them from wanting to immigrate to Europe. He was helping Africans to stay in Africa. And this was transformed by the enemies of Gaddafi into accusing him of using black mercenaries to kill people. And this was totally invented because, in fact, it was the black people who were killed by the anti-Gaddafi people, who, in fact, were the extreme Muslims in, in Benghazi. So this was a total, total lie, which destroyed a country, was a big setback for the continent of Africa, and also set off a huge wave of not-to-welcome African migrants going through Libya toward Europe. So it's a total disaster, and the responsibility lies very heavily with Hillary Clinton, who bragged about this, who laughed, chortled happily when she heard that Gaddafi had been murdered. So it's one of the vilest crimes in history, in my mind. Could you talk about censorship and the crackdown on free speech? It seems that all areas of knowledge are now not open to discussion and debate, even science. I'm thinking here of the climate, for instance. Who could have predicted that discussion of the climate, of all things, would be subject to censorship and ridicule? Can we have a society where critical thought is outlawed? Well, we're, we're moving a little in that direction because part of the reason for this, I think, is that we're in a very technological society. So there are a lot of issues that are very hard for people who aren't specialists 
to, to understand. So it's very easy to come up with an official view. Now in the climate, the, the problem with the climate is, is that it's very clear that there are dominant interests, economic interests who've decided that they want the new phase of capitalism to be what they call green, which means that they want governments to subsidize certain types of investment. And they've had a huge uh, propaganda campaign in that direction, and you're just not supposed to question that. And there should be there should be open debate on these questions among, especially among scientists, you know, people who who have different views. But it's it's pretty much not allowed. I mean, I I know of a friend who's a member of an academy, a national academy, who's trying to sponsor a, a debate on the climate, and the people who have the official view will refuse to debate with people who don't, right? So there can't be any debate. And that goes along with people like Antifa and people who want to censor and laws against hate, which is an emotion which I don't think it's possible to abolish a human emotion, but laws to abolish hate, laws to this, that, and the other. It's becoming a society that it seems to be allergic to, to honest, calm, intelligent discussion of issues. It's, it's very disturbing. Diana Johnstone, thank you so much. Well, thank you for talking with me. It's a pleasure. been speaking with Diana Johnstone. Today's show has been Memoir of a World Watcher. Diana Johnstone is an author, journalist, and political activist. She is the author of four books, including Fool's Crusade, Yugoslavia, NATO, and Western Delusions, Queen of Chaos, The Misadventures of Hillary Clinton, and co-author with her father of From Mad to Madness, Inside Pentagon Nuclear War Planning. Her new book, published by Clarity Press in February 2020, Circle in the Darkness, Memoir of a World Watcher, was the subject of today's program and is available at claritypress.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Trying to steal your life. You know-